This inspiring message comes to you from Impact Church in Kingston, Ontario, where we are committed to living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. You know, I have memories as a child of this little daycare at North Minister United Church where this lady, and I could not find the glasses to put on the end of my nose. But these, this lady that was probably 138, <laughs> I swear somehow they have some sort of magic pill they kept giving her every year just to get one more year because she was a Guinness Book World Record holder. I just knew it. And every day she would come downstairs from upstairs of the church and she would read a story to all the kids and Every day it was exciting because we wanted to make sure that she actually made it to chapter 2 and didn't fall asleep in the middle of her reading. Um, and so if, if you can this morning, um, I would like to channel uh, my inner United Church uh, 137-year-old grandma <laughs> and just start off with a story. Is that okay? Are you okay with that? Okay. Every once in a while, because you're the lead pastor, you get to do things that you shouldn't do, but you're going to do it anyway. <laughs> People tell you, you, Cameron, that's a great idea, but just that stays at home. <laughs> it's like sometimes our kids say things that should have stayed at home. No, 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 that's just private family things, guys. We don't talk about that at Walmart. <laughs> In the lineup with 15 feet of people on either side, all within shouting distance and hearing distance of everything. So here I'm going to go. Are you ready for this? And in honor of Chris, who I personally know his story and I know what he's gone through and what he shared this morning is only just a snippet, but I'm going to read this morning. Once upon a time, there was a priest who went to visit the Jericho Road. He was a very religious man. That day he saw somebody who had been hurt on the Jericho Road, and he was mortified. He came and gave that person the last rites, as any priest would, and he quickly ran back to his parish as fast as he could. The following Sunday, he gave a sterling sermon about the Jericho Road, and he felt so much better. Then there was a pastor, his name was not Cameron, who went down to the Jericho Road, and he was appalled by what he saw. It was awful on the Jericho Road. And so he came back to his church, and do you know what he did? He taught a course called The Biblical Understanding and Perspective of Poverty. They showed films of people who were being beaten up on the Jericho Road, and everybody felt rotten. But they all felt so good that they had finally done something for the people on the Jericho Road. There was still another person. He was a revivalist. Now, he didn't go to the Jericho Road, but he saw it on television. He then gathered 65,000 people together in the Jerusalem Dome. And they sang songs about the Jericho Road. You should have seen them with their microphones and their spotlights and their lighting machines and their amazing sound and how they sang and prayed so beautifully about the Jericho Road. Then, and please don't throw anything at me, there was this left-wing activist he went to the Jericho Road, and he was incensed. He was angry by what he saw. 
He came back and he organized demonstrations in the cities. He got all the young people out of the high schools, colleges, and graduate schools. They shut down the universities and they marched on the Jerusalem monument of the capital city. Yes, they were very active for the people on the Jericho Road. But then there was a person on the political right. And he went down to the Jericho Road and he saw the moral decay on this road and in this country. And he thought, we've got to solve this problem. We've got to raise employment and change the economy so there won't be so much violence on the Jericho Road. So what did he do? He lessened taxes for the rich. So the rich would have more money to make investments. So there would be more jobs for the poor. And he increased the sales tax on the poor. So all people could help pay for the cost of maintaining the Jericho Road. While the priest, the pastor, the revivalist, the left-wing activist, and the right-wing moralist were all busy. The man on the Jericho Road died. The end. The good thing is, is that story doesn't end the way it sounds. At least it doesn't have to end that way. I don't know about you guys this morning, but as I've been thinking about parables, and you, you can obviously probably pick up on which parable I'm going to read today, uh, the Good Samaritan, but I want to start by talking about this place called the Jericho Road. Some of us feel like it shouldn't exist. Some feel like it doesn't exist, but the reality is, is it does exist. And for every city, there's a Jericho Road. For every town, there's a Jericho Road. For every school, there's a Jericho Road. The real Jericho Road was a place literally between Jericho and Jerusalem. It was a 17-mile road that connected those two cities. Interestingly enough, for those that know their topography, they would know that there was a 3,600-foot drop between those two places. Can we picture for a second San Francisco? Picture those trolley cars trying to get up and down the other side of those hills. That is literally what that road looked like between Jerusalem and Jericho. 3,600 foot elevation change in 17 miles. It's a steep, winding, descending remote road that was literally known as the road of suffering. It was famous for, uh, for robber, uh, robbery, for, for uh, a whole bunch of violent expressions. Why? Think about this. The people that were journeying that road, because of the topography, because of the distance, because of the up and down, up and down, up and down, with everything they were carrying, they were exhausted. And if I can say this morning, they were vulnerable because of how tired they were. The Jericho Road, can I say this morning, is always with us. It doesn't go away. I wish it did. I wish everything within me, we could see the Jer Jericho Road disappear. But for us, it hits us in many different ways. In Kingston, Ontario, right now, the Jericho Road is the lady in the nursing home that has been struggling with dementia and no longer can remember her family, her friends, sometimes or even her own name. But she's sitting there, struggling. For some in Kingston, it's the working poor family with four children that can never get ahead. No matter how hard they try, no matter how many jobs they get, no matter how many part-time jobs they work, even with the, the concept of a living wage and $15 an hour minimum wage coming, they're still looking at that going, yeah, well, I still don't know how to do that. And they're struggling. 
It's the man who can't hold a job down because of his addiction. It's the teenager that is struggling every single day they look in the mirror because they're struggling with an incredibly poor self-image. It's the young adult that sits at home every single day with no response, nobody in their life, at least the perception that no one's in their life. And every other day, they're thinking about taking the very greatest gift that God ever gave them, their own life. The Jericho Road is right beside us. We go out these doors, we go down the street. Could be your neighbor, could be your friend, could be the person that you're sitting next to at work in the cubicle, and you have no idea what's going on in their life. Can I be honest this morning? I grew up in a middle class bubble. I'm just going to be brutally honest this morning. Grew up in a middle class bubble, lived in a very nice area of the schwa, even though there's not a lot of nice areas in the schwa. I was in the nicer area of the schwa. That's Oshawa, for those that aren't familiar with Oshawa. And when I came out of university, the first job that I got was a job that I kind of stumbled upon. I wasn't looking for it. And if anything, I can tell you, the moment I got the phone call, hey, we're offering you this job, everything inside of me wanted to respond, thank you so much for the offer, but I'm going to spend the next seven years just looking for another one. It was a youth shelter in the heart of Oshawa. And within the first seven days that I worked there, the cops came to the shelter six times. First week, I had somebody get in my face and threaten my life, threaten to slice the tires on my car. That was the first week. Every single night, we had to discern whether that was weed, whether that was alcohol, what it was. Eyes dilated? Okay, it's got to be alcohol. Man, that's a smell. Woo, that must be weed. And every single night, we had to figure out which substances these kids were coming back under the influence of. Can I say this morning, it rocked my world because I'd never seen anything like that. I've seen movies where people are like that. I've seen all of these different things, but I was in a middle to upper class area of Oshawa in a very nice school, probably one of the nicest schools in Oshawa, great reputation for academics. It was a great school for sports, but it it was a good school. I didn't see a lot of things. And then I started seeing things that I didn't want to believe were there. And then I started to see things in a totally different way. God led us on this incredible journey. Sandra and I, through this time, we'd gotten married. And I remember this one girl that had like, significantly impacted my life. I won't say her name because um, I, just, I don't have permission to say her name, so I won't say her name. But we'll just call her for the sake of, of this. We'll call her Susan. But Susan had a... A life that on the outside I perceived as a 17-year-old girl, I thought she came to the shelter to get away from paying bills. Do you know what I'm saying? Or to get away from responsibility. And then I started to hear her story. Multiple sexual abuse from every male that had ever come through her home, including uncles, grandparents, cousins, boyfriends of her mother, multiple times abused. Physical abuse. Emotional abuse. And I'm seeing this girl that on the outside, and you would agree with me, beautiful. But that hardness that had come on her life. And there was this chip on her shoulders, the best way to describe it. But she went back and forth between having a chip on her shoulder and having this sense of hopelessness and depression that she couldn't overcome. One day we had got home, and because we had really made a connection with her, and I would made a connection with her at the, at the youth shelter, 
One day, um, I got a phone call from the, uh, our director at the youth shelter and said, I don't normally do this um, because I know you're coming in in a couple of days, but I wanted to let you know that Susan tried to take her life last night. She's in the bubble in the mental health ward at Oshawa General Hospital, and you need to know about it. And so I basically asked her, and I said, I have a question for you. I said, can Sandra and I go to the hospital, not as Cameron, the, the youth shelter worker, but as Cameron and Sandra, just normal people that want to just go in and just love on Susan? They went, that's totally fine. Just make sure you make that abundantly clear when you go in, that you're not going there as a representation of the youth shelter. I went, no problem, I can do that. And I went in there, and remember how my eyes were opened at the youth shelter? I just went a hundred times that when I walked into the, what they called the bubble at Three Main at Oshawa General Hospital. I walked in there, and I saw things that I never even knew existed. And I was looking at people that were literally under the influence, in my humble opinion, of demons. I saw people not under the influence of demons, but were so broken and so destitute and so hopeless, they didn't know what to do. We saw people that were in there for two and three months at a time, had families, a significant amount of family, all within 20-minute drive of the hospital, and none, no one had ever come visited them. Not one. Not a sibling, not a cousin, not an uncle or an aunt, not a parent, not a grandparent, nothing. And they're just sitting there wasting away. And I remember going in that day, and we literally looked at Susan. We looked at her right in the eye, and I just said, and honey, it's going to be okay. You just tell us what you need to do to get through this. And Santa and I are going to be there. We're going to be there step, every step of the way. Long story short, about, what was it, about a week later? We led her to Christ. And in the bubble, in Three Main, in Oshawa General Hospital, she started a relationship with Christ. But it didn't end there. Then the nurses started saying, what are you doing? Because they started to see a change in her. And we said, do you mind if we kind of come back and just visit other rooms? They went, go ahead. I went, okay. So we went back for, was it six weeks? Six weeks, probably five days a week, I'm going to say, about five days a week. Um, and we went back and we went room to room to room and we started visiting people. And what we found out is that everyone had heard uh, uh, Susan's story and they start hearing all about what's going on. Little did we know, within that first week, Susan gets transferred from the bubble back to the main ward. And so Susan starts telling everyone about the story of Cameron and Sandra and how they did this. And so within about six weeks, there was about 30 people that were gathering around us. Sandra's sitting at a piano in a common room. She's playing these songs, and I'm just sitting there going, Jesus, what are you doing? I don't even know what to say. Just love on them. Okay. Sometimes you get smack dab put in the middle of something you don't even have an answer to. You don't have to have an answer to it. You just go, you know what? Somebody's on the Jericho Road and I'm going to do everything I can to be with them and get them off of it. She's now married. She has four kids. Faithfully attending a church. Last we had heard. The one thing we learned coming through that is, is a very simple thought. God just wants you to be available. Just look around you. Sometimes we see people doing things that just irritate us, make us angry, make us mad, and we go, hear their story. Hear what's going on. Understand the significant moments that have influenced and affected their lives. Sometimes it's trauma. Sometimes it's neglect. 
Sometimes it's a whole whack of things in between. But there's an element of the Jericho Road that we're not necessarily called to have an answer to everything. But we are called to care. And we are called to help. Amen? Amen. The Jericho Road is a place where people have been robbed. And we understand the Good Samaritan story, and I'm going to read it in a second here, but they were robbed physically. They were robbed of their clothes, their money, their belongings. But we know of people right now, you can think of them right now, that have been robbed of their dignity, robbed of their love, robbed of their food and clothing, robbed of their value as a human being. We know those people. And Jesus addressed this very situation and probably one of the most powerful parable stories that you've ever heard in Scripture. Even those that have never been to church have heard of the Good Samaritan. And I'm going to read it to you this morning. Luke chapter 10, verses 25, and you can follow it on the screen behind me. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. The expert was somebody who was most likely a Pharisee, someone who was perfected in the law of Moses. And when it says he came to test Jesus, can I say this morning, it wasn't because he was giving him a questionnaire. It wasn't because he was giving him a 17, you know, remember Fullscap back in the day? It's called legal now, but I called it Fullscap when I was a kid. And remember how you got those exams in grade 12 where it's the Fullscap and it was like 17 pages long? He wasn't getting one of those tests. This man was trying to trick him. He was going right after him. He says, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke 10, 26, it says, what is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? <laughs> so what does Jesus do? He answers this guy who's coming at him with this crazy question. And what does Jesus do almost every single time? He answers a question with a question. Can I say this morning, you know one of the most strategic ways you can ever answer big questions that people are bringing to you? Answer it with a question. Put it back on them. Get them to think about it. Right? It's important. Luke 10, 27, it says, And he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. It's directly quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. It says, And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Interestingly enough, the tie-in here is that he's literally saying, do this and you'll be saved. Because that, in a lot of ways, was the understanding of the Old Testament form of salvation. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 really was the salvation message for those in the Old Testament. Love the Lord God with all your heart, right? With all your strength, with all your mind, all your soul, all those things. But the expert there wasn't finished. He went back at him again, verse 29, and it says this. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And I love this because Jesus literally answered with a kingdom response. Now he's got him set up. Who's my neighbor? Okay, you ready for this? Are you sitting down? He's going to get him. Verse 30. Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Can I say this morning, the priest and the Levite were the religious elite. And they didn't look too godly right there. Verse 33, it says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. One version says he had compassion on him. 
You have to understand the dynamics of the story. Samaritans were despised by Jews, and Jews were despised by Samaritans. It wasn't a, a group of people that got along. Just picture Toronto Maple Leafs and Ottawa Senators, right? It just it doesn't connect in any way except with Jesus and only on very special occasions. Um, but remember the woman at the well, John chapter 4. She was actually a Samaritan woman. She understood this to be true because when Jesus approached her, her first response was like, what are you doing talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. And Jesus looked right at her and went, yeah, yeah, I know. Can I tell you a story about what true worship is? She came to Christ. She went back to her town. And the, entire, the Bible says the entire village came to Christ as a result of Jesus reaching out to somebody that was not the people he was supposed to reach out to. Jesus touched their heart. Verse 34, look at the Samaritan's compassion. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. That was the first aid of the day. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. He didn't just take him off the Jericho Road. And can I be honest this morning, when I grew up, it's very easy to take people off the Jericho Road without getting inconvenienced. We pay for someone to go take a truck to go down and pick them up, put them on, and then pay for them to go back to a hospital. And if I can say this morning, that's good, we need it, but there's something better. Can I say from my own life experience, I never understood compassion until I worked at the RQ shelter. I never understood compassion until I worked at John Howard Society. And I could say before that, I understood compassion. I had no clue. I understood compassion when we were sitting in a room on the backside of Three Main at Oshawa General Hospital in September of 2000, and we were literally, or sorry, in, in March of 2001, when we're literally having 30 to 35 people gathering around us, coming down from their rooms on Three Main, struggling in their issues and struggling in their depression, struggling with all this stuff. And I saw something in their eyes, and you know what I saw? I saw that they were as human as I was. And it's not their fault at times for some of the things that they go through. Sometimes they, they made their own choices. Yes, and there's consequences to choices. We know that. But sometimes there was incidences and situations that were thrust upon them that they never asked for. They never wanted. And I looked at them, and when I saw humanity, I saw divinity. Because I saw those people, just like Chris said, all in a room, stuck with stuff. Jesus just kept walking in, and I believe that in that season, Sandra and Cameron Jeffs, at that moment, were Jesus. Not because we looked like Jesus. I didn't have a beard, didn't wear sandals. But we were Jesus in that moment. Live like Jesus. Love like Jesus. Live love. That's it. Jesus in Kingston. Amen? goes in verse 36, verse 37. It says, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Hmm. 
He asks a simple question. He literally says, which of the three was your neighbor? And what Jesus was doing, I want you to catch this. Jesus was doing something really cool here. He was switching the question. The original question was, who is my neighbor? And he switches it around, and he's asking, who was the one that was neighbor to the one in need? Notice the switch. Notice how he turns it around. Notice how he gets them to think about their own choices and the way that they engage situations in their life. He got them thinking. Can I say this morning that, that God invented the first State Farm commercial? Like a good neighbor, Jesus is there. Remember the song? Come on now. State Farm stole it. Right? Somebody must have been a Christian in the upper regions of that CEO office somewhere. There's three lessons we want to learn from this, and I'm going to just say them very briefly. I don't want to spend too much time here. Number one, a neighbor is one in need who we can help. A neighbor is one in need who, can, who we can help. Simple as that. Are we a neighbor? Find someone in need and meet it. Right? Now, I want to give some wisdom to this because I've seen people that say, oh, we should just give money to those that are on the streets. No, you know what I'd recommend? Give them food. They're hungry. Give them food because we probably know where the 20 bucks is going to go. So don't give them money. Give them food. Engage situations. Engage conversation. Get to know them. Get to know the storyline. Connect them and, and, and start to resource them. Network them to different people that can get them help. There's a lot of great organizations in the city of Kingston that are designed for specific areas of need. Let's get them connected to those places. Amen? Um, you may have heard this story for those that are... Uh, you know, been around a little length of time that are experienced, as we shall say, um, may have remembered this story. And I actually stumbled across it, and it really caught my attention. Uh, there's a lady by the name of Kitty Genovese, who was a girl that lived in Queens, New York, in the early 1960s. And on March the 13th, 1964, as she was coming home, she got out of her vehicle from work. She was coming to her apartment in Queens, New York, and the story became famous, and I'm going to explain why, but she was uh, robbed and stabbed twice by a, uh, a gentleman, I can't remember his name, but by a gentleman who was uh, from New York City. And here's the story that hit America and actually led to a huge article in the New York Times that week. But they believe between 35 and 40 people heard her screams or saw the event happen and did nothing. 35 to 40 people that saw her lying in a pool of blood and walked by. Heard her screaming and walked by. Can I say something even further? They didn't even call. It was another person that lived in the apartment that was leaving for work that came out and made the phone call. And this person had seen what had gone on from the window and saw multiple cars going by, multiple people going by. And after they were there, saw multiple people going by, nothing done. And here's what New York Times published. That week, an article that was titled, What is Going Wrong with America? Fifty years ago, think to yourself, what's going wrong with America today? What's going wrong with Canada today, right? But no one responded. Lesson one, key one, is that we have to respond to a neighbor, just like a neighbor, to those who are in need that we can help. Amen. Lesson number two, a neighbor's anyone, even our enemy. <laughs> even our enemy! That's not comfortable. Helping someone that doesn't like us. 
Helping someone that doesn't want to talk to us. Helping someone that, that, that maybe rails against us even politically. I, and God's saying, help them? That's what a Samaritan was. Right? Matthew 5, 43 to 48, it says this. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be there or perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Actually, the word, when you translate the word perfect, it literally means mature. Be mature as your heavenly Father is mature. Lesson three, last thought. Compassion must be our response to our neighbor. You can go around the world right now and you're going to see many hospitals around the world with the name Good Samaritan on their title, on their doors. But to me, I think it has to go beyond the title on a door or a building, and it has to be something that's written on our hearts. If there's one thing I've learned by going through some of the experiences that I've gone through is that it's very easy to have the title on our heart written, compassion. It's a whole other thing to have it seep into our heart and actually be the motivation for what we do and why we do it. When does the switch happen? The switch happens when we go from just giving resources to something to walking with somebody who is beaten on the Jericho Road and we walk with them the entire way to their healing and pay for everything that's necessary to see them well. Then we've made the switch. Jesus in action. Can I end with another story this morning? I realize this chair is not exactly fit for big people. I was afraid when I got out the first time that the chair would come with me. (laughs) As I'm getting up, I'm sitting there going, oh, please, Jesus, help me. I'm feeling it hugging my sides in ways that I don't want to. Go to bed, Tom. Go to bed, Tom. Tired or not, Tom. Go to bed, Tom. That's right there. You can read it. I'm going to flip to the other page. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm on the wrong page. Once upon a time, Harvard Divinity School gave a test to its students. It was a very clever test. The title of the course at Harvard was Christians and Society. The professor had created a test that was three hours long. How many have ever been in a three-hour long exam? How many want Jesus to be rapturing you before the exam takes place? Okay, all right. How many have never heard of the rapture? Okay, good, all right, all right. How many have your rapture shoes? You haven't seen them? They're sold on TBN. Like, come on. All right. Sorry. Sorry. It was a tough test on being a moral Christian in an immoral society. Halfway through the test, the teacher arranged for a break where the students could take a 10-minute break to leave the room, go outside, and get some fresh air. Once the students came back into the room, they could finish writing the test. The students were writing as fast and as furiously as they could writing down all the knowledge, their knowledge of morality. What does it mean to be a moral person in an immoral society? But now it was break time, 
And the students went out into the courtyard where there was iced tea and cookies. What are your favorite cookies, everyone? Children, what are your favorite cookies? There we go. Peanut butter cookies. Out there in the courtyard was another part of the test, although the students didn't know it. This was the real test. There was a man all beaten up there in the courtyard. He was there, and the students looked at him and drank their tea and ate their peanut butter cookies and said to themselves, what should we do? We have this test to take. So they all went back into the classroom to finish the written part of the test first. The professor looked at them and flunked them all. The end. Did you like that one? Why? Now here's where we're going to be real for a second. And I'm going to end with this. Because I honestly believe that the church flunks the same test. I'm not saying impact, but I'm saying the church in general. And we are included in that. Sometimes, and I want to be careful here because I believe in discipleship. I believe it's necessary to grow people. I believe it's important to help people grow in their faith. But if we get out of balance and become so inward focused that we're not outward focused, we've got a real issue here. We've got a dichotomy we've got to correct, right? But if the church flunks the real tests in life, the people that are on the Jericho Road, at our work, in our neighborhoods, our kids' friends, whatever it is, then I think we've missed it. And here's one thing I've realized in my life. The real tests, yes, they happen within the church, but to me, the real tests happen on the Jericho Road. That's the real test. What do we do with it? How do we respond? What do we do? What do we say? How to resource? How do we help? That's the real test. Thank you for taking the time to listen to one of our messages from Impact Church. We hope and trust that this message encouraged you. If you want to find out more information about our church, check us out online at www.impactkingston.com.